Hello, my friends. Today we have another special guest host episode with Derek Knudsen, the former CTO of Alteryx, hosting Mikhail, the CTO of Avast. And they discuss how Avast is combating adversarial AI used by hackers with AI for security that can scale. Mikhail's goal of decreasing the cost of online freedom for all and why it's important to keep users invested in their cybersecurity health. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. But a little background on me. Uh, I first came to actually the Modern CTO Podcast. I developed a a relationship with Joel when I was the CTO at Alteryx. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if you've heard of Alteryx. Um, Sorry. It's a analytics tooling company. So I've got, you know, an, an inch level of knowledge versus mm-hmm. probably your vast AI knowledge. Uh, Alteryx developed uh, analytical tooling for the non-technical user. So you could go do things like develop uh, predictive analytic workflows, uh, mm-hmm. in a very kind of what you see is what you get WYSIWYG type fashion. Mm-hmm. You can do data automation if I had any kind of um, analytics automation work that I had to do. So that's where I got introduced into Joel um, and the Modern CTO podcast was on this, I think, a couple times and then happened to spend some time with Joel when he was passing through Denver and he offered, hey, why don't you come on and host it? We had such a good time when you were on the call. Why don't you switch seats with me and and spend some time um, talking. So uh, when I got a, a look at the folks that potentially to talk to, your name was on the list, your company was on the list. I said, McCall's the guy that I want to talk to. His background is fascinating. Um, very good, very uh, good, exciting. Yeah, so most of my background's in strategy. Uh, uh-huh. That was my job at Alter, really to scale out the organization, develop the technical strategy. I know you spent a lot of time doing that. Um, like I said, your background is pretty amazing. So can you give us a little bit of a brief walkthrough about you and kind of your journey to where you're at today? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I'm a kind of hardcore AI scientist guy. And, you know, I've been working on AI since I finished my PhD in 90s. And uh, at the time, I kind of learned from my professors in Edinburgh that uh AI is a great tool, but you know, AI has got the limits. AI will never drive a car. AI will never win in golf. AI will never win in poker. So I'm kind of kind of seeing as the time goes how much I learned while kind of doing AI as opposed when while I was studying AI. And this is pretty fascinating. So getting a degree is not enough. You kind of really need to practice AI to kind of be valuable uh, to business and to companies. So uh, because of my passion for AI and my passion for applications, while kind of doing research and building systems and building teams, I was also attracted by figuring out how what I do can really help people, right? So you know, as scientists, you know, in academia, we are driven by citations and publications, which kind of drives me. You know, I really like kind of other fellow scientists to read my papers. But on the other hand, I'm more driven by the impact that is on society, on people, on industry, on business, on the way how we live, on the way how our life is more comfortable, on the way how our life is, is faster in a good way, about how our life is more secure and safe. That's why I was uh, kind of building startup companies with my PhD students and fellow researchers, 
I built a couple. Uh, I was lucky uh, to exit a uh, few. The most the most interesting gig was uh, when we built one of the first companies in through AI ML space in cybersecurity in 2008. It was at a time where actually nobody believed that this is at all possible. People thought that you know, this is like really smoking mirrors. That's you know AI, AI and cybersec. That doesn't work at all with me. These days, it's very difficult to do any business if you don't have an AI sticker inside your whatever you do. So we were, we thought that the way how AI scientists are processing images can be very similar to the way how we can process network traffic. And we have been using ensemble-based machine learning in order to be able to detect anomalies in that flow and network traffic on the internet. And through detecting anomalies, we were pointing to ATPs, advanced APTs, advanced persistent threats. And this, this kind of led us to building a great product and getting a good, good customer base and in the end uh, exiting to Cisco. So Cisco acquired my business and uh, I was uh, running AI for CyberSec in Cisco for several years. And then you know, I can I came back to the university. I started a few other uh, smaller companies. I've exited a uh, few few more uh, than I did VC. And I felt that you know it's it's comfortable life. I can do part time VC, part time being at the university. When Andre, at the time uh, CTO of Avast, approached me, and he kind of made me to believe that you know this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to take the advantage of my AI experience and passion for building systems and to help not enterprises, but to help consumers, like people who are living digital lives, to help them to solve their problems with security, privacy, freedom in the future. And they all, he just got me excited until I joined the company. He became the CEO until we, we, we were together since. Yeah, I saw your background. Um, you've started a variety of different companies. Like I think I saw an, 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 avi an avionics company. You did some AI with aviation. Obviously, there was a security piece. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. your applied your applied AI was all over the place. It's it's fascinating. Most people will find a an industry niche and and pretty much stay in that in logical adjacencies. But it looked like you you kind of went large left hand and right hand turns into different spaces, which is fa fascinating. Yeah, so like you, the the aviation business, it was exciting. You, know, it's the company called Agentfly. You, know, I've exited this already, uh, but uh, it was a, you know, it still is a startup company of a, of a reasonable size now that is solving a problem how to model complex systems in avionics. Right, we were solving the problem how to get rid of air traffic controllers. If you look into the kind of aviation business, there are people who are running landing and takeoff. It's it looks stupid, right? This is like fully automatable process that can be automated and would always outperform people. But the problem that you we had at the time was how to how to bring technology there, how to test and experiment. You just cannot kind of bring a new algorithm and then count a number of airplanes that crash, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then go and debug, right? So right, right. This is the way how you would innovate in this space. So that's why we've built a complex multi-agent technology 
that was used to be able to model and simulate with high precision different scenarios of use of a technology in the air traffic control problem. And today, FAA is the biggest customer of agent flight technologies and is using the technology for testing and simulating different scenarios of bringing in new tech, which is you know, into the problem, which is still heavily uh, man-controlled man and man-involved. It was exciting, right? Yeah, it's fascinating. I know that's not what you're focused on now. Um, I was, you know, one thing that I saw, it was I was interested in how you moved to Avos, given you seem to have a pretty good rhythm with the academic work you're doing, the VC work you were doing. What com really compelled you to move to Avos? I know you introduced a little bit of that, but were they approaching the, the connection between AI and cybersecurity in a very different way that you said, hey, that's a unique approach uh, and something I'm excited about strategically, and that's what got you to to kind of look at that opportunity and jump at it? Was mm -hmm. there something specific that was different about them than I'm sure you got approached by a ton of different companies to do some similar roles given your background is so applicable and so needed in the cybersecurity space. How was this the right path for you? So I, I give you kind of two pieces of answers that are different but related. So the reason what got me excited and the reasons that, that make me excited currently, right? So when Andre offered me the job, I was excited by the set of values. You know, I'm actually big, big on uh, citizens' freedoms and liberties. And, you know, me kind of being kind of brought up in the East Block of Europe, when the Iron Curtain would fall apart when I was 18, kind of my kind of uh, sympathy with uh, people who are not free, who are manipulated, influenced, who cannot use, who, who don't have any free access uh, to information, it's it's very exciting, you know. And you know, I also help philanthropies in this space, and I, I'm really passionate about people's freedoms and liberties. And you know, it was the first time in my life when I kind of got an opportunity to marry my professional experience and my knowledge and skills with a set of values that I was supporting in my free free time, right? And that was that was this exciting piece. I can use AI not to help big companies to automate to make more money. I can use AI to protect people against more and more sophisticated sophisticated threats on the internet, against uh, big giants on the internet, against manipulation. And this set of values and the opportunity to kind of contribute uh, to digital freedom of the ordinary internet users, that was the exciting piece. So this is what excited me when uh, Andre gave me this opportunity, and it continues to excite me now. There is additional differentiator. I had the opportunity in my life to work with cybersecurity specialists and with AI researchers and scientists. You cannot imagine so, like other two dissimilar technical communities, right? There is there is a big gap between these two super intelligent, sophisticated, impactful uh, communities. And like, like with Cisco, when I was working with Cisco, I had hard times really to bring those groups together, to respect each other, to share knowledge, share experience, share passion. In Avast, it's working. It's the first time in my life when I see these two communities being excited one about the other and working shoulder by shoulder. I actually think that you, by me being able to really 
excite those two camps to share objectives. It makes actually a vast, a unique, a cybersecurity place. I, I'm, I'm not seeing such a camaraderie and jo- joint uh, or shared objectives in other cybersecurity firms. And this actually makes me excited. The fact that you know, there is a shared workplace where these two gangs like to work together. Yeah, um, let's talk to both of those. Let's let's start with the, the latter since you just talked to it. I've I, I run InfoSec in my my past. I kind of know that, that cybersecurity persona a little bit. Um, and, I, and Alteryx was an analytics company. We had data scientists and kind of that that persona represented in terms of you know creating new um, predictive analytic models, et cetera. So I, I'm I'm sympathetic to the difference in styles with those two. How how do you take two very different kind of wired instead of engineers, we'll use that generic term and and provide kind of shared vision, shared strategy that both can be like, okay, I, I get that. That's not specific to either side. That's that's shared vision. Uh, it's shared direction, it's shared strategy. How do you how do you navigate that given mm-hmm. that they are very different, you know, kind of you know, resource sets for lack of a better term, with very different motivations, very different experiences. How do you, is it communication style? Is it, is it finding a compromise in messaging and goaling? Talk through how you motivate both sides at the same time with the same message. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So it is mainly on being able to understand what are the technical problems that would be the best place in the middle, right? To, to, to be able to figure out what the problems would be those that would be exciting for both, both camps. And you all get to this. But uh, before I list some of those problems, I'll tell you that uh, the hardest part for me was to uh, make the AI scientists to really appreciate the subject matter expertise of the InfoSec people. Your, your, your AI scientists are more about data. So they, they, they are not so excited about people. You, you give me your data, I train your model. And that's like, you, I would say that your AI people are very transactional when it comes to kind of providing value to, to users, to customers. And to be able to change this mindset and to figure out that it's not data, it's this great skill that the InfoSec people have, which has been trained for years and years and years, that they need to be able to take advantage of and understand and to turn them into exciting customers. Because without doing that, you know, the, the AI research doesn't have an impact in this problem, right? So that, you know, they would still stay swimming on kind of more abstract problems, kind of demonstrating what can be done, but not providing value to the implicit people. So it was actually one of the kind of change of the mindset uh, of, the, of, the, of the AI people. The change of the mindset when it came to the implicit people was the scale, you know, in Avast, you know, we see how many attacks happen, right? We see you know, how many viruses we catch every single day and how much does it grow? There is, there is a massive growth of the, of the infection on the internet. And the smart infosic people started to realize it's a scalable, it doesn't scale. So right. they started to really appreciate the automation, better tools, Kind of pushing more decision makings to the algorithms as soon as they still are the they keep the control right so they you you kind of need to give them the opportunity to kind of retain a lot of control 
when the, I was trying to figure out what is the problem that would make the both parties excited, it's AI explainability. AI explainability yes. is a problem which is exactly in between of these two camps, right? Because uh, for AI scientists, irrespective of the domain, explainability of machine-like models, it's an exciting topic. From, from healthcare to uh, autonomous driving, right? So people like it. If you provide good explainers on your uh, detectors and classifiers, that would kind of be supplied together with the technology to the implicit people, they get more excited. They get they they trust AI more. They see right. better, they see better relevance. And through explainability, the infosec people started to see the value. You know, kind of my uh people are writing Yara rules. You know, we use Yara rules as a language to represent rules that we deploy on the endpoints through which we are protecting against malware, right? So now the AI people are building detectors and classifiers, and they represent the result in the same language, in the error rules. So for me, it was super important to come up with a representation that would be similarly accessible to the implicit people as much as for the algorithms that are producing classification and unnumbered detection. Does it make sense? Totally. I, you know, I, on a related point, I was on a podcast a while back, and that was the topic they wanted to get in the most was kind of the explainability side of it. When you look at, you know, your ensemble-based models or your deep, you know, neural network models, the explainability side, whether it's security or whether you're making an underwriting decision on a loan candidate, like that's a really important part kind of for the morality and the, eth the ethical side of, of analytics. So I can only guess how, how pessimistic um, a cybersecurity expert is in terms of, you know, specific outcomes of a machine learning model if they can't understand it, right? That by, by nature, that's how they are. Mm -hmm. um, so I can only, I can only ex understand uh, to a great extent that that's probably a huge challenge for them. Uh, and that explainability part is, is really valuable for them. It lets them participate more on the AI side than they probably could have before. And you're kind of beginning to bridge the skills gap between the two parties. Uh, you're not going to, I'm guessing a guy like you can't go out and hire, you know, five new uh, data scientists who have deep understanding of cybersecurity. That's a brand new skill set. If mm -hmm. it was, hey, I'm a, I'm a data scientist who spends time in, in fraud detection, financial services, there's, there's probably, you know, relative to cybersecurity, there's probably plenty of those. But in the cybersecurity space, there's probably zero of those. So you're developing a very specific data scientist skill set that mm -hmm. allows them to bring context to their work, and that probably creates much greater value to your point. So super interesting. You know, I would add this to Derek, uh, kind of one more thought. Classical AI scientists are motivated by replacing people, right? So whatever people do, you know, you train a model and you replace cognitive capability. In cybersecurity, I don't do this. I'm excited about making the cybersecurity specialists a paraprofessionals. So that you know, with the proper use of AI, their time is 100x more impactful. Right. So until this this multiplier of the time of my security analyst, this is the metrics. That's what I optimize. I don't optimize how many people I can fire. I optimize the impact of the people <laughs> that, I, that I have. So that's that's one thought. And the other thought is the world is changing because the infection that we see is AI based, is automated. Right. We see 
more and more infection, which is created by the algorithms, right? And we all understand that you know, the AI constructed or AI empowered or AI based scaled attacks gonna scale like nothing. You just pay for the compute that, so you can scale exponentially. If we as the defenders would be weak on AI based defense and would be using people for AI based attacks, we can never win. We would always yeah. lose because we cannot scale the way how the attackers are scaling. So it is super important that you every cybersecurity kind of innovator or, or a CTO or somebody who is in charge focuses on maximizing the amount of AI, the you know, AI-based automation, machine learning, uh, to be able to fight AI-based attacks with as much AI as possible so that you keep human intellect and human power for the cases that are human crafted so that you right. guys you can keep attackers finding people and ai finding ai right yeah that's absolutely that's spot on that's really well articulated you know it's a one plus one equals three thing with you know you take the the, the cybersecurity expert you take the the data science and the artificial intelligence and it becomes you give them that tooling and they can do their job exponentially better. And I love your point around, you know, let's keep people focused on people problems and let's let the technology focus on the, the technology specific intrusion vectors uh, that, you know, these, these, these entities are trying to attack people with. That makes tons of sense. Yeah. So on, on that side about the cyber and the AI side, what are you seeing in terms of where that industry is going in terms of what types malware is being developed or try intrusion vectors are being developed is is there something that listeners should be aware of of the podcast in terms of being thoughtful on you know you talked about hey bring ai into how you think about you know cybersecurity protections is there anything else in terms of new attack vectors or what have you that that you think folks should be aware of that you're seeing now given your seat okay so i think three things one is uh, we see new attack vectors constantly. We see new types of attacks. And the truth is, it's it's very difficult. You know, once you kind of get a new attack vector or a new source of data that indicates to a malicious behavior, it's very difficult to kind of sit down with your people and kind of build a new classifier, new design, new feature sets. Kind of do this each time again based on the new attack vectors that you see. Right. So what we are trying to bring is kind of deep learning based methods, featureless machine learning methods, methods uh, based in hierarchical uh, multi-instance learning, which are kind of generic enough so that can kind of easily let the classifier trained on the new data that are describing the new behavior. That you kind of do not need to do this in a laborious machine learning engineering together with these subject matter experts and craft independent classifiers. So the generality of machine learning is very important to be able to respond in a timely manner to the new infections. As far as the trends are concerned, what we see, obviously, as any other cybersecurity specialist, is that the humans are in the center of the attacks. So the attackers no longer attack machines devices, network, it's boring. Attackers attack people because people are the easiest way in. 90% of the attacks are based on people's errors and clicking on things that they shouldn't click on. 
entering their private data to places that they shouldn't, right? And the capability to deceive people intellect and people attention, this is the most prevalent trend these days when it comes to new, new vectors. And that's why we are trying to really focus on what is more important now it was before, which is trying to understand how people are vulnerable and what makes people to click on things they shouldn't click on. And we are learning this is an AI-based problem. It really is. Because if I want to kind of write a deceptive phishing email, what I need is your inbox and good and good machine learning systems that would help me to create a model that would write an email that I would trust. So with more private data out, with more privacy that we disclose and share, easier is it to write good quality models that will send me an email that I will trust. So that's this, so this is an kind of important attack vector, uh, human-centric attacks. And your Avas is actually moving in this in this space to uh, to be uh, to be more valuable to the end users. And the third trend we see is actually in the space of adversarial machine learning, right? As occurs now, and you, we are running AI under the hood, okay? We are. So at the whole space of adversarial machine learning and adversarial AI, it's kind of trying to come up with samples that would uh, go around your classifiers. What are the, you know, what, what behavior I can get through the classifier? Your adversarial machine learning is computing those samples, right? This is the, this is the, this, this new field. You know, people, people know adversarial machine learning mainly from uh, deceiving cameras and recognizing uh, traffic signs, right? So that you, you can kind of change the traffic signs so that you see it differently than the algorithm. And cybersecurity is the same. Uh, attackers are trying to deceive our AI by crafting sophisticated samples that will go beyond protection. What our goal is, as a AI cybersec people, we need to build algorithms that are robust against deception, robust against overtraining, robust against uh, data poisoning, sample poisoning. Uh, this is like a problem that wasn't here before, right? Your people, your before attackers kind of couldn't care less about our algorithms. They knew their ways, right? So now with the improved quality of protection that is by big part AI driven, we are seeing attempts of the attackers to overtrain our, our algorithms. Yeah, the, the point you make on um, the people dimension of this problem is really interesting. You know, it's come from, I think you, you see a lot of, Folks in this space that are, you know, these these agencies trying to take enrich information around people and build, you know, models of uh, vectors uh, to get at people. I know text is something that, that a lot of uh, us are really vulnerable to. We're used to dealing with the the email filters and email from a terms of protecting you against malware is fairly effective. The text side of it doesn't seem to be as effective. Folks seem to have lower more trust in if I get a text message, I, I I tend to trust the text more than I tend to trust email. So I know that's probably for you all, in, you know, trying to inject something that gets in the way of the text stream of things. But I'm sure a huge challenge of you is just trying to educate humans on 
identifying threats, right? I mean, you know, having run InfoSec and tried to do that within organizations before, that's a huge challenge. Um, and folks yeah. only tend to get interested in solving it once they've been duped. Then they recognize, hey, this is a real problem. It's not somebody else's dealing with cyber issues. And I'm not me. Uh, once you get duped and, and, and inevitably somebody will get you duped, uh, you begin to recognize that's important. So is there a is there a way that you or the industry's working to bridge the human knowledge gap, the awareness gap? Because I will tell you, and and trying to run continuous education programs within the companies I've worked for, we always seem to be hitting a wall in terms of getting folks to really value that level of training um, and find that it was important. It was always, you know, pulling teeth to get folks to want to invest in understanding kind of the the evolution of the cyberspace so they could be protect themselves from it. And to your, to your point, if humans click on the link, there's nothing your software can do, right? Uh, they can make poor choices. So is there stuff that you all or the industry is doing to help yeah. there outside of just trying to create better software to reduce the, the, the opportunity? Is that all you, all you can do? So listen, uh, part of my job is to help to reinvent consumer cybersecurity, right? Come up with kind of big new ideas. I'm not bringing any quantum computing into this. I think it's much much simpler than that. I'm trying to bring humans back in the loop. For the last 30 years, the cybersecurity and the AV industry has made this error of providing the user with "you do not need to worry" security. We you got it right. You're, you're, you are protected. You don't need to worry. And it's a mistake. As, totally. a as a foundational mistake, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, the industry shouldn't have done this because by this, the industry created uh, low engagement products that are now difficult to sell, honestly, because they are low, yeah. low engagement. While cybersecurity shall be high engagement problem, we need to bring people into the loop and we need to make them co-responsible for what is going with their uh, privacy and security online. We do this in Avast by kind of building new technologies and new products in this space. We are experimenting with new products. We are doing uh, user research and we are testing technology, whether technology can provide. And you know, one of the interesting ideas that we have is a combination of AI explainability and uh, gamification, right? to figure out what, what is the, the best representation of the information to user and how can you make the user engaged in trying to act on it. And the approach that we are taking is we are building a cybersecurity Fitbit, right? You know, people, people wear their smartwatch and they, they monitor their heart rate and their oxygen and you know, they, before they go to sleep, they see all their charts how they improve their behavior, how they, how, they, how they sleep, how they drink. People are excited, but people are not excited to understand how safe they are online because they think they are safe because they paid somebody $10 a month and this is and they are covered. So we would like to build a cybersecurity Fitbit that would give everybody transparency, visibility into how they behave, whether you know, how often they change their passports, uh, passwords. Uh, you know, where do they click? What what sites do they watch? There are sites that are dangerous, but still still okay if you are careful, right? So if you go there, you're gonna need to be more careful than if you're gonna read your email and your Gmail, right? 
So, and it, this is a non-trivial concept for many people. And I think it's a duty of a cybersecurity industry to kind of come to people and to start giving them advice, giving them continuous monitoring, and try to make them to improve their cybersecurity behavior online. It's not only education, it's the technology plus education. Yeah, that sounds like kind of the, the, the holy grail of, of, of products. If you could, you know, get the user, the end user involved in increasing their cybersecurity protections, I think that would be amazing. I know that if you take a, an average sales guy who thinks that doesn't care about that space or an average consumer who doesn't think about it, my, you know, my parents, et cetera, right? Yeah. They don't, they don't have any consideration for those types of things and they get, they get, um, they get, uh, they have issues constantly. It seems like my father specifically always seems to have security issues with his, his computer yeah. where he does, you know, for makes poor decisions. Uh, so if you can get the human side involved in some of the edge, the decision-making in terms of what they select and why they should select or why they shouldn't select something or take a specific action. I think that's, yeah. that'll, that'll take the industry, you know, a quantum step forward. Yeah. I would add to this direct that, you know, it's, is it only, providing users with visibility and gamification, but also providing with personalized cybersecurity. We are different. We have different lives. Our lives are kind of dangerous online from different perspectives. So kind of the, the danger that I experience is different than my father does, and it's different than my daughter do, uh, than the, my uh, daughters do. And because we have visibility, we understand, we can, we can learn models of the behaviors of the users online. We should be able to provide them a custom tailored security, which is specific to each of our lives, each of our internet needs. And also, we have also different attitudes to risk. Like my parents are very risk averse, right? My kids, they understand internet much, much better than them, and they are more risk open, right? So yeah. the personalization of cybersecurity, this is a big thing. Yeah, 100% agree. Well, let's, let's pivot a bit because I, I want to learn more about how you do your job. So you're, I think you're, you're I was looking at your, um, your, your stock symbol and the project, the progress of it's been remarkable, the growth of uh, the Avast stock. Uh, I'm sure that the organization scaling out probably looks very similar. What are the, some of the big challenges you're facing uh, in terms of like the organization, we talked a little bit about bridging the gap between the, the data scientist side of the organization and the cyber expert side of the organization. But in terms of org design, distribution of work, making decisions on where you deploy resources, you know, what are what are some of the primary challenges that you're really focused on right now? Okay, so I would say the biggest challenge is the horizon. You, you're, in my organization, there are 200 people. And each of them has have got different horizon, different horizon of impact and, and delivery. So there are people who are fighting with the attackers the minute, right? So, so they need to deliver now or in a minute or in half a day. So the, the horizon is imminent, immediate. There are right. people, there are people who are building systems for those people to be professionals. So their horizon can be a quarter, can be a year, can be 18 months. This is the horizon. And then in my organization, in the technology group, also on innovation, people who are trying to invent new products, new services, new values to users. And again, there is a different horizon. 
And there's also different risk, right? So the people who are protecting our users now, there is a zero tolerance to risk. We, we need to deliver, we need to protect every single user on the internet. People who are uh, innovating on a future digital freedom product portfolio that will matter in three years from now, they have a different horizon. And if I silo, I'm losing the opportunity. Uh, you know, the, the interesting soup gets from the mixture, right? So to be able to mix the perspectives and the experience and the job description of these groups with a different horizon is a huge challenge. But I believe that in this challenge, there is a value. Do you guys have distributed teams? I, I know you guys have. I know you're, you're Prague-based, yeah. by the way. You know, I've been, Alteryx had an office in Prague. It's one of the great cities in the world. For folks that haven't been there, you got to go there. It's amazing. Uh, do you guys have offices you know, in yeah. other places, India, China, uh, other markets? And, and if so, how do you think about distribution of work given, given you said everybody's got different horizons? Do you like limit a location to a specific horizon? Do you have teams that so, span different locations who have shared horizons? How do you think about that? So it'll be actually exciting to kind of have the have this discussion two years ago because we would be able to speak about kind of geographies and and team locations and kind of geographical strategies strategies where you hire where your people are. You know, after COVID, it's all different, right? So we we have learned how to work from anywhere. People our people are working from anywhere. So you know there are people who joined the company a year and a half ago and they, 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 they never saw each other, right? So there is, a, there is a huge opportunity in this flexibility. And also kind of for some, the asynchronicity of work is actually great kind of to be able to work in more asynchronous way. And also people hate Zooms. So that's why they try to be more rational about meetings. Kind of, you know, the face-to-face -face meetings have some charm, right? People kind of really like to meet, meet, meet each other. Once they cannot, they need to get together on the Zoom. It's much less pleasurable. It's more troublesome. People are less excited about Zooms, which in the end is driving efficiency. People meet less. People meet less. People spend more time using asynchronous work tools. We use, we use Asana to perfection. We use Jira to perfection. Right, so we we have rules that if there is a meeting, there needs to be a pre-read, right? That every the, the person who is calling for a meeting, he needs to provide a pre-read material. There needs to be a written conclusion that are stored somewhere in Jira or Asana. So the, this 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 pandemic thing kind of made us more responsible to the meeting times, and I actually see this as a positive effect. You know, we we in Avaz have offices in tens of uh, countries around the world, but the engineering hubs are really uh, Prague and Brno, Czech, Czech Republic. Uh, we have people in London. There is a good engineering site in London. We have uh, engineers and researchers in uh, Silicon Valley, in Berkeley. Uh, we have uh, engineering uh, teams in, in Serbia and Belgrade. That's pretty much it. So we are learning that it's less about location, it's more about the time zone. So we kind of need to really figure out how to build the time zone because the time zone is a it's an obstacle. And kind of being a sophisticated own time zone, this is this is this is a huge challenge. But you know, we are we are getting where we want to be. The second huge challenge is to be able to attract good quality talent, right? The talent in our industry is a rare asset. 
your prices are rising, skyrocketing, the availability is dropping. I would say that the average quality of available people on the market is lowering because kind of good people have their jobs and they they are not interested to pick up a call from a recruiter. So the kind of the talent availability is is a non-trivial problem. In my field, I'm betting as being a former academics, I'm betting on university collaboration. You know, and here in Avas, we we work with UC Berkeley, we work with Stanford, we work with King's College London, UCL in London. You know, we work with the with the best school, best engineering schools, and this kind of puts us into a great position to get to know the communities and kind of show our logo to students and excite them about our mission. So we are very successful in being able to tap the junior talent. However, as as a, as a manager, you know, the right mix of a junior and senior is very important. So we cannot stay only on the level of being able to take junior talent from universities. Yeah, I think there's a lot of companies that are trying to approach it your way. I think access to talent is a huge challenge. All the CTOs and, and CXOs that I talk to, they ask me two questions. One is how do you, how did you or, or do you manage innovation in this distributed situation? I, I what we found that a lot of folks in industry found is the core engineering aspect during COVID was we saw a way better productivity, uh, but where we lost momentum was in kind of that white space around innovation, collaboration. If you're if you're talking about net new strategy, you know decisions or some in, you know thinking through some innovative think tape type concepts, doing it through a digital medium just did create the same amount of energy that you had in person. So the, the age question I get asked is, well, how did you guys overcome that? The answer I had was, well, we kind of did it. Like we were struggling with that. Um, and that if somebody can solve, hey, how do you bring that same kind of in-room whiteboard energy into a digital format? Um, I think that'll bridge the gap significantly. And the other question they ask is, how are you doing on talent? Because we are struggling to, to find good talent, uh, even in the distributed model. Uh, and I think the answer a lot of folks come back with, I think is, is similar to yours, which is it takes time to get the cycle going, but let's start engaging with university level hiring um, or kind of non-traditional educational fronts to kind of build from the bottom up and build that, that kind of growth model through the organization. But to your point, you always still have to hire a certain amount of senior resources to develop, mentor those, those kind of more junior resources, less experienced resources. That just takes time. Um, so it's a little bit of a difficult challenge to overcome. Uh, I'm sure you'll get there over time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, to the uh, kind of digital means for innovation and kind of collaborative thinking, we kind of did a good experience with Miro, with Miro boards. Yeah, as a, yeah, yeah we as, did too. Yeah. yeah, as a mechanism to work together and kind of co-create. Co so uh, in from the innovation aspect, uh, what is difficult? In my opinion, and this this is independent of pandemics, it's also independent of of industries, is to kind of bring everybody to the table, share the perspectives of people who have different burning platforms. Right, everybody is on the burning platform, everybody is stressed and passionate and needs to deliver, but in order to be able to come up with a new product that you can sell and that uh, users would be excited to to buy or to install, you need to have different professions around the table. But you're in a company like us where you know, we are really passionate and, 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 and fighting attackers, it's, it's non-trivial to bring in people who are trying to cover the next quarter 
people who are ready to deploy in three weeks and people who are ideating about the products that will matter in two years. Right. Uh, kind of different horizons of different burning platforms as a challenge that we are trying to learn how to how to overcome how to overcome. Yeah, I don't I don't not surprised on that one. How about the academic side of things? Are you still finding time to to, to engage in a lot of academic work given everything you're doing professionally? It seems like a full-time job in itself. What yeah. what do you focus on academically now? Anything of interest there that you're looking at that it doesn't have to be cyber related, but just in general, are you are you looking at anything in that space that that's got you excited? Yeah, so um I'm still a professor uh, at Czech Technical, right? So I do not teach any anymore. I don't have time for this. But, you know, I'm kind of spending time with PhD students and kind of using this creative environment as to get some ideas from and to provide some inspiration to, right? So um, I'm a, I continue to be like an academic, part-time academic. And, and the... The problem that you excites me when I speak with my fellow uh, researchers and scientists is, is the concept of a cognitive antivirus, right? So how to transform the problem of the antivirus, cyber antivirus, to cognitive antivirus. You know, in the past, kind of people were debating, you know, if Elon Musk and his Neuralink will provide the uh, brain implants when is it going to happen? It's going to be helpful. It's going to be healthy. But also, is it a danger for cyber attacks? Can we get hacked? So don't we need a totally different level of protection on the internet if our brains get hacked? So my response to this is, this will never happen. I don't believe uh, alone doing that. If we were not able to lift good glass, which was substantially less invasive technology, I don't believe that you know, we will get brain implants. They will never get an approval. It is unethical. And there is a, it's interesting times where kind of ethics is getting more and more important in research, science, and technology. So I, I think that you know, we do not need to worry about the brain implants, but we need to worry about getting hacked without brain implants, with our cell phones, with our PCs, right? So it's it's not difficult to uh, make me sick through cell phone. It's not difficult to hack me so that I can make actions with unintended consequences. It's not so difficult to hack me so that I hurt myself physically or psychologically, or I will make a decision it is not good for me if somebody hacks me, right? So, and this kind of this space where protecting against phishing attacks meets misinformation and disinformation, that's super exciting. Those two, those two problems seem to be from two different worlds, cybersecurity and uh, media manipulation. But when I work with my research scientists at the universities, I'm learning it's just the other way around. That those two problems are so close, so similar. Clicking on, on a link, which makes me to give out my credit card number, is a similar mental cognitive attack as kind of me choosing not to get vaccinated. It's another cognitive attack with unintended consequences. 
I just don't enter the consequences, but I got hacked, right? So this problem of preventing our brains to be hacked is here now, and we do not need to wait until Elon succeeds or doesn't succeed with his brain implants. And this problem of our brains to keep them uh, away from hacking is very is very topical today. Interesting. So how do you find, uh, this is, uh, as I look at your background and the balance of all the academic work you do, uh, all the, the business-centric work you do, obviously you got the Avast job uh, is, is full-time. Uh, and I think you mentioned you're, you're uh, at least a child, maybe more than one wife. How, how do you how do you manage your time? Because <laughs> um, you seem like a person you have to work 100 hours a week uh, to get through all the things you have on your plate, do you have any any good life hacks that you use to kind of manage your personal time and your we'll call it your professional time, which includes your academic time? How how do you manage all that? You've got a lot going on. So uh, the way how I manage this through uh, longer distance running. Oh, because long distance running kind of makes me to to be disconnected, to kind of run long time without the phone and be only with my thoughts. This is actually important. You know, I, I recommend everybody to read books on Kindle or in paper and to run because this kind of gives you with a with a time to think that is different to the time that the internet wants us. You know, the internet wants me to kind of provide high frequency of attentions that are uh, one second lasting. That's this is what you know, this is how I'm hacked, right? And to be able to uh, be safe from this hacking. We're just going to need to train our resilience in this high-frequency, short-span attention economy. And to me, reading a book and doing a long run, 20 miles run, that's that's an opportunity how to build a resilience against uh, stress, against uh, lack, of, lack of time. Because once you devote time in this particular matter, you know, in this particular way, you you need to get something out of this, right? You need to either learn by reading a book or you need to kind of really sort out your thoughts while doing a 20 miles run. So that's that's what helps me. It actually helps me a big time. Wow. So on the running side, you can I call it a compet even if it's a you know a, a non-professional competitive runner, are you a marathon person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm a marathon person. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I have the same background, so I'm fascinated by it. Uh, I always wanted to get over to Europe and run the London Marathon and the Berlin Marathon. I always heard those were kind of like destination runs. Uh, do you guys have something similar in Prague? Yeah, you yeah. Run those runs? yeah, yeah, yeah. Prague Marathon is beautiful. It's it's actually part of this uh, league together with London Marathon. It's actually one of the most go-to marathons. It used to be, before Pandemic, as one of the most go-to marathons in, in Europe. Very beautiful alongside the river, quite flatty, pretty fast. Got a good, good results from the uh, from the racers when they come over. So yeah, yeah, the Prague Marathon is is great. Uh, I'm actually you know I I've got my mountain house. You know I spent kind of all the pandemics in the mountains, and you there were no races, so I kind of turned myself more from like a uh, uh, marathon runner in cities to like a uh, long distance runner in the you know, in the mountains. So I started to be substantially less passionate about time, but more about the altitude. Yeah. Wow. So, okay. So the amount of meters that you 
that you climb while running. That excites me. So, so you see that you how pandemics are going to change somebody's passion for running. There were no marathon runs, so <laughs> what could I do? But you seriously uh, come over to Prague. Your Prague is hosting a beautiful marathon. Yeah, what an unbelievable city! I enjoy it a ton. So I know we're getting close to your stop. Any 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 parting thoughts? Anything you you want to share with this group before we call the we call it good? So yeah, can I really thank you for the opportunity to speak about my work? Uh, I I think that what would be great if kind of people who share my excitement about this this work kind of make their kids to study AI and cybersecurity. This is this is a hard combination, really difficult combination, but it's actually one of the most important combinations that are around here. Kind of similar to AI and healthcare, AI and medicine, like you know, at Imperial College in London, in the first grade of medical school, they teach you AI. So it's kind of a similar combo. And you know, I'm a believer in combo. When when parents ask me, you know, should I put my kid to study AI? say no way do ai and something else and i think that that ai and cybersecurity is very important for the society not only for the jobs and for the salaries but also for the society because they will be contributing for one they will be increasing the amount of freedom that we enjoy on the internet and second we will be reducing the tax that the society needs to pay for being safe online safe online is very expensive proposition and with more smart people, we will be able to drive drive this cost down. Yeah, I tell you, I, I'm I'm super motivated by how mission oriented you are. Uh, and, and it sounds like you guys are hiring basically almost anywhere. Time zones need to be somewhat supported. So if, if you're listening to the podcast and you're motivated by the mission, I mean. I will tell you, McCall, I don't run into a lot of leaders that are that motivated by mission like you are, uh, but those are the best people to work for, right? Uh, and so if you're motivated by that story, I don't, I couldn't think of a better company leader to work for than you. So Thank you. Uh, is there a place they could go to reach out? Is it they go to the website, look for careers online? Is there a good way for folks who are really yeah. buying into your vision to, to kind of come and maybe come to work with you all? Definitely. We are hiring. Check my LinkedIn page, get in touch. You know, uh, there is kind of lots of posts and kind of blogs I I write and I uh, share and post. And you learn more about us and uh, get in touch. You are being kind of more excited with every single listener of both uh, podcast who would be interested to work with us either in Avast or at the university. Or, Fantastic. Or do a PhD. Do a PhD. Because education is shortening, right? You know, the, the future of education will be not five years degree, but kind of two years degree, one year degree, half a degree, nano degrees. But still, we need scientists. We still need people with PhDs. And I worry that people will be less excited about PhDs in the future. But I tell you, PhD helps you. It's a good thing to have. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.